Amanda Signorelli is the CEO of Tech Week, a massive media conference whose purpose is to support entrepreneurs and innovators in the tech world, provide them with a platform for networking and collaboration, and ultimately, to spread wealth creation to diverse people and places. Amanda came to Tech Week from a management background at McKinsey & Company, where she saw firsthand how advancements in technology could disrupt large corporations. During her tenure, Tech Week has grown to operate in nine different cities, Detroit, Chicago, DC, Toronto, Kansas City, New York, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Miami. What it translates into is economic growth comes from those success stories. Silicon Valley's success came directly from those examples of Fairchild. What would it be like to have PayPal have that same PayPal mafia effect in Detroit? In this illuminating discussion, Amanda revealed how she tapped into the entrepreneurial and tech communities in cities all around the country and mobilized them to come together and share their knowledge and resources to their mutual advantage. Please enjoy our conversation with Amanda Signorelli. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. So first, Amanda, thank you for being here. And tell us a little bit about your career path and specifically what you learned at McKinsey. You're a Vegas girl, right? You grew up in Las Born Vegas. Born and raised in Vegas. And uh, went to Wash U. Went to Wash U. That and was an adjustment. It didn't go well the first couple from semesters. From Vegas to? Yeah, it didn't go, didn't go so well the first Why couple semesters. Why is that? It's a lot of things you see on the strip in Las Vegas <laughs> that when you go to St. Louis and you're like, oh yeah, you know, I have a lot of friends who are strippers. And they look at you and you're like... <laughs> It's awkward. That doesn't play in Peoria? It didn't, it didn't go no. so well. Yeah. But that's okay. I that's had friends okay. that guided me through that, which was Shows good. you how you can adapt, right? Exactly. Exactly. Skills. So what was it about McKinsey? And I've had several friends who were McKinsey people who went on to do inc- incredible, extraordinary things because of the skills they learned there. What was it about that experience that really launched you to where you are now? Yeah, well, first of all, so sorry. We're kind of crazy. I know we're probably really hankering the style a little bit, but... I know there's quite a few folks that have had a similar background where you see in management consulting, you're constantly given an opportunity to build that general toolkit. What's amazing about doing that immediately out of college is that you come in and they start teaching you, oh, we've got a couple mics going. They teach you how to think. So you understand all these broad concepts through accounting and financing, you do your homework and you're like, okay, I've got it. I totally understand how all of this stuff works. Then you get into consulting, somebody asks you a couple questions, you realize you know nothing. Um, and the best part about consulting is they say, this is a perfect opportunity for you. It's a step-up opportunity for you to learn how to actually run a business, process a problem, and think through and structure all the different things you encounter. Now, the other wonderful thing, what they also call step-up opportunity, is they throw you in the deep end. Mm. And they say, sink or swim. Let's figure out how to get you to the point where you can really own a piece of work yourself. 
how do you develop that independence and how do you develop the ability to communicate effectively with those that you're responsible for. When you escalate a problem, managing client expectations, you end up at the full suite of it with an understanding of what matters most to businesses and being able to juggle all of those different attributes. It's a huge piece. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, when people who have not, uh, who are not familiar with your story don't know that in three short years, she started working for Chicago Tech Week and is now the CEO. So I don't know many people who in three years rise through the ranks to CEO. Tell them what you did, what was your first job and your first role at Tech Week? Yeah, so the way I came to Tech Week was I thought, great, I've been doing consulting, I'm really good at data and numbers, I'm gonna go be a venture capitalist. So I started reaching out to uh, quite a few VC firms in Chicago, and there was one that actively looked for management consultants. So I went there first, which was Guild Capital, and I said, hey, I'm here. I want to be a venture capitalist. I think it's going to be great. I'm very ADD in my interest, so I'd be fantastic to look at a bunch of deals. And they laughed at me and said, you will have zero value because you have never operated something. I was like, well, that was harsh. Um, so immediately I said, okay, fine, won't be deterred, then let's turn that into me joining a portfolio company that you have and you saying that you're going to look out for me and that if I really am able to prove myself, you will give me an opportunity every month, every two months, every three months. I will do everything that I can, but you have to be willing to give me a chance. So they said, fine, we'll start you at the very bottom and see what happens. And so at the very bottom, I started code calling, cold calling people and selling boots for 300 bucks. So I'd be like, hey, there's this great hiring fair table, $300, I'm Amanda, you've got your gal. And that's how I started, just calling and calling and calling. And then soon enough, I started closing bigger deals and bigger deals. In the back of my mind, I was like, I'm definitely going to use this as a chance to just go join another startup because this is crazy. Right. Um, and then kept going and kept going. Next thing I know, I started closing very large deals. And then I started launching a new market and started becoming the market lead for that, then pulling in other startups and built out a new product to try and increase our total sales volume that we were having for a specific event, which meant bringing in more early stage startups and creating something unique there. So then I built a new product, which was, I'm gonna find, I think it was like 300 is my average, 300 startups in every single city that we were running to be able to participate and work with. I'll find them, I'll bring them in, I'll invite them to Tech Week, I'll try and partner some of them with investment firms, I'll run with that. So then I was now doing the operations component. Then immediately I found myself taking over an actual profit and loss statement and then quickly turning around and saying, wow, I'm one of the few people that's really doing some finance around here. Now I'm all of a sudden also kind of a CFO, didn't see that coming. Then it was, oh, now I'm also kind of an accountant. Wow, I'm processing a lot of invoices. Um, and quickly, as they always say, you never know what your job really is going to be in a startup. You just need to be willing to take it on with the challenge. And now, all of a sudden, I found myself when our former CEO decided that she wanted to launch Codeverse, which was in very stealth mode at the time. She said, I want to go do this myself. I then, at the beginning of 2016, decided, okay, you set your sights. Well, we'll do this. Right. Let's, let's see how it goes. And now this is my second year. So, wow, right? right? Is everyone else as impressed as I am? You take a job really as a basic sales job, which is trying to sell these booths, correct? Yeah. At Tech Week. That's it. And you, you did not let the job title in any way define you. Yep, right? I was director of business development, I think. I think what most what people do in that scenario is they sell booths, right? They sell booths and they try to do it well. But 
something about your McKinsey experience, maybe it's something within you, has not only allowed you to be an excellent salesperson, right, but also one that can see the title of a job as just the beginning. What is that about? Where did you learn that? Yeah, I actually think that is less something that you get from a job. That's not something that McKinsey's going to teach you. It's not something that Goldman's going to teach you or a law firm. That's much more of a personal piece. Mm -hmm. To some degree, someone would probably call it a little bit masochistic, which is <laughs> fine. Um, but there's this also other piece of what keeps you going and what inspires you. So for me, growing up in Vegas, um, my father was always looking for the next opportunity. And he was always like, oh, casinos and gambling, and there's always something cool, and there's all these great markets. Was he in real estate and business development? So he actually built out a casino in okay. Mesquite, which was really interesting and also a complete failure, actually, mm. which was a great learning opportunity because here we had this giant casino that he built, 250 rooms, did this at the same time as Bill Boyd. They were all working together to start all of these new versions of the Vegas because they wanted to expand it. There was only so much real estate on the strip. However, the idea was a complete bust. Mm. Nothing, nothing survived. It completely collapsed. It was huge for quite a few families that were there. And so he just started starting over, mm. constantly looking for something new. Happened a couple more times. And I remember always watching the fact that he was constantly looking for something new and constantly building. Mm. He always saw an opportunity. He always took a chance to say, I'll take the meeting, I'll talk to this person, let's keep going. And that was something I don't think quite stuck with me until I actually left McKinsey and started at Tech Week and started really hearing no consistently from all my cold calls, probably from a couple people in here, mm -hmm. I call you out. Um, and realizing, okay, you know, I can, I can keep hearing no and I can keep going. I've seen my dad do this quite often. Mm -hmm. I really want to build something myself. And that, I think, really comes from how you're raised and what you see in your surroundings and how that inspires you. After all those no's, after all the cold calls, because I'm sure there are some people in this audience right now who, have, who do this to some degree as part of your job, any tips from that perspective of how did you go from the small $300 booths to the larger and larger accounts to getting where you were? Was there, is there any tip or trick? I stopped talking. That was a big piece. You know, don't talk so much, just listen. That's the biggest piece I always say to salespeople is your job is not really to just keep telling somebody over and over the facts. Like they should be able to read them. They're perfectly intelligent people. You should really just listen and hear what they have to say. So you start at the very beginning of what's the problem you're trying to solve. And so I had my clients and I'd say, hey, you know, BBVA as an example, what exactly are you trying to solve? What is defined as success? And if you have to say one thing to your boss at the end of this to make sure he says, I will give you the money again next year, what do you need to say? Then it's just you talk for 30 minutes and I listen. That allows me to be much more targeted and much more focused in how I'm presenting something. Because uh, it's not me, it's not just saying it's here's what you're going to get. It's actually incorporating and listening and being able to adapt to what somebody says. So you're, you're trying to de define their need and from that see how the booth could solve the problem? Exactly. Interesting. All right. Tech Week's mission. This is something, you know, again, we're only talking three years that she's been at Tech Week. What is Tech Week's mission? Great question. So we started in 2015, 2016 with this idea of tech entrepreneurship to build a better world, but it felt very amorphous and not very focused, um, which made it really difficult to deliver on because it's like you can kind of say that about most things that you're making progress. 
And so then we started focusing and asking questions over the course of 2016 to all of our entrepreneurs in each market and said, how do we grow this market? How do we keep the trajectory? How do we make sure that there's economic development? What's stopping you from being the next Silicon Valley without being it? Because everybody should have its own unique identity. And the answer consistently was, we need more success stories and we need more companies reinvesting and entrepreneurs willing to then succeed and do it again and again and again. Start mm -hmm. off these spin-off stories. It's actually very similar to what you see happened in Silicon Valley where Robert Noyce originally started with um, one company then became part of the Traders 8 is what they were called and started Fairchild Semiconductor and then from there started Intel. So it was a series of spin-offs and then Intel had 20 other companies that they started. You need to have those successful success stories of then reinvesting. So with that, we launched a white paper, catalyzed everything and came up with our mission which is what we have today which is TechWeek exists to spread wealth creation across diverse places and people through supporting the emergence of hero companies. A bit of a mouthful. Mm -hmm. What it translates into is economic growth comes from those success stories. Silicon Valley's success came directly from those examples of Fairchild. What would it be like to have PayPal have that same PayPal mafia effect in Detroit? What would that city look like today? That is exciting. And to some degree, it's a bit provocative and not necessarily popular because the premise is, if you look at what success is, it's not 5,000 startups in a market. It's not. A lot of those will fail, and they're not necessarily going to be able to create a job that lasts longer than a month. So here's, Tech Week is a business. It's a company set to create their own wealth themselves, right? And you're the CEO. I can see the mission being to increase tech companies and the tech community here in Chicago as good for the city, as good for Illinois, as good for the community. But how does what you're saying trickle down to how it would increase revenue specifically for Tech Week? Yeah, so I think the big piece is being able to understand once again, what's the problem that you're trying to solve, right? So a great example is first and foremost, how does Tech Week solve the mission? And then how does that translate into dollars? Right? So from a business model perspective, fun fact, we make zero money on tickets, like pretty much nothing. But yes, there is a price tag on there, but it's really just to make everyone show up. Okay. It tends to be that if you have a free ticket, no one does. Um, so we don't really make any money on that. The money that we do have goes immediately back into the money we use to purchase it, those Facebook ads that you keep getting blasted with. Nothing's coming out of it. Everything that we get in all of our dollars is coming from corporate sponsors. So the way that we look at it is dividing every single sub-event of a tech week into value both for the attendee and what the objective is, the problem you're trying to solve for the community, and then the objective you're trying to solve for the sponsor. So a great example of this is something that we call Founders House. So Founders House is an invite-only event that we do for CEOs and founders, gives them an opportunity to connect with peers, and then also advisors. So the amount of times that at some point a startup and a very successful company is going to get sued. Who do you call? You need a good lawyer. This is an important process. Mitigation is something we never think about until you need it. Um, being able to be in the room with the right people. So that's something we curate. Now on the other side, despite the fact that that's the need we're trying to deliver for the audience and the ecosystem to make sure they continue to grow, we're looking at why do we create value and what's the dollars that we're able to show for ROI. And the answer is people like those law firms want to get future clients. They want to work with tech companies. They want to be in the same room with those CEOs because they're the ones that are the decision makers that say, yes, I'm gonna put my budget on this and hire this lawyer. Mm -hmm. So for them, it is very exclusively a business-to-business -business lead generation play. Success for them is defined by three introductions to tech companies that can afford to hire them. Wow. That is ROI. You're curating audiences specific to their needs. That's correct. Excellent. 
um, and you're trying to scale it, not only it, grow it in Chicago, but scale it to other cities. Tell us a little bit about what cities you're trying to reach and just the Herculean effort of trying to scale this concept in other cities and starting from scratch. Yeah, so uh, today we operate in nine markets. We just announced DC about a month and a half ago. Uh, what was really exciting for me is that this was one I got to pick. In 2016, I signed up and they were like, oh, you have to launch to two markets. And I was like, what? <laughs> Uh, how do I do that? Um, and that was Toronto and Dallas. Both were very interesting opportunities and very hard to do um, and very different outcomes as well. I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a pure success either. It was quite painful. Um, Toronto, we didn't really have much of a network for. We started doing some reach out. We found out a lot of people were actually a little bit frustrated that we were an American company coming into Canada. Mm. And a lot of people preferred that it was Canadian to Canadian. Mm. They did not like the fact that we were starting to encroach on this community. And it was some very interesting feedback for us to be like, okay, whoa, we got to think about how we can still get people to come, right? Success is being able to define the community mm. and not necessarily just build a castle and saying people are going to be excited to come. We have to be a reflection. And so we started over on our planning process all the way, like scratched everything and all the venues that we came up with, went into that market and then met with probably, I think I did 50 meetings with different individuals in the market, just saying, this is what we're doing. I'd love to hear what you think. Can you tell me a little bit about your market? Just really spending the time, get to know them. And it put us about two months behind in the planning process. So it really condensed the amount of leeway and runway to be able to execute it. And in the end, it was a massive success, but it was interesting to learn that early on. And what was the trick about Toronto? If you have a, you know, a sense that they would like to keep it within Canada and Canadian we companies. We stopped making the ask. Those advisors that we got, we built out three tiers. So we had executive advisors that were a point of credibility. We had community partners that were a point of promotion. And then we had steering committee members that were a point of voice. Point of voice means I am not going to reach out to you as a Canadian company. My steering committee member who is Canadian will, and then will have me on the call and will serve as my voucher to say that this is a legitimate conversation and I am a credible person and you can trust me. So it wasn't me making the conversations, it wasn't me calling, it was me going to the steering committee and being like, here's my list, let's get on the phone and see what happens. Wow, what an exercise in politics, right? Yeah, very interesting, very yeah, interesting. Dallas was much easier. That was like 10,000 people, three nights of concerts, wild, four months of planning, so much easier. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. You know, um, I wanted to find out a little bit about who is going to Tech Week. And, you know, we're all on our mobile devices. There are people in this room right now who are trying to start websites and businesses and small businesses. And it, it all seems techy. What, you know, when you think of Tech Week, what is a tech company? Is, is something as small as, a, you know, someone trying to create something beyond an Etsy shop? Is that a tech company? Is that too small? And are those people, will they learn something at Tech Week that, that, um, and, and create the contacts? that you know they're trying to. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about Tech Week is on average all of our markets is going to have anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 people. That's just across the board. Some of our largest will go up to 15,000 but that means that you have a beautiful assembly of different people of all walks and lives and backgrounds and level of sophistication and knowledge of tech. Mm -hmm. So you could have somebody that says I have no idea anything about tech but my you know daughter tells me I really need to have something to track all of my emails with my vendor for my small business shop. That person may come to Tech Week and look for a potential solution to solve a problem. And you also have the incredibly complicated data security intense let's build our own AWS companies that are also going to be there and they're looking for talent. 
everybody's coming with a different purpose. And so out of that group, you end up with traditionally four very predominant segments, which is first and foremost, tech enthusiasts, people with early startups that are excited or maybe have an idea, but they're certainly in the community and they mm -hmm. know the rest of the environment. The second one is mostly corporate. What corporations are starting to see is that software is going to eat most of what they're doing, right? There's a realization of it's taking over the world. I need to be a part of it. What does it mean to disrupt it from the inside? Some corporations are doing it well. Some are really not. And so they're going to Tech Week and learning about all of these opportunities, trying to find tech that they can bring internally to maybe make their company better. Then you end up with investors, service firms that are also there, and then you end up with your established tech leaders that are making a difference. But that tends to be the four predominant segments. And to your point on what's the differences on the tech businesses, you can have a tech-enabled business, mm -hmm. which maybe the primary product is apparel, or you could have a tech-driven business where it really is like, here's the technology, here's the API that you're going to use. Like that is very different. Um, and that is all welcomed. And it's all, all of it is incredibly valuable because the beautiful thing about having all of these people in the room is that it is curated serendipity. Right. If you have the right people in the room, the right things happen. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think about five years ago, we would, people who, for those of you who aren't in tech, would think, okay, those are the tech people. And now there's such crossover that I think we all either are in tech or should be in tech. I mean, and we should all learn about tech. And so I think that just by that sheer fact alone, that should be increasing your numbers in all of your cities. People have the, the fascination and the hunger to learn more about what tech can do for their individual careers, businesses, and you know, even if they don't own a tech company. Absolutely, and sometimes it's also about making it digestible. I think a problem that we tend to have is everybody here is very well educated, very successful, and doing something that is really interesting and looking for something else. But you all are constantly reading, and you're paying attention to the trends, you're seeing the articles that are popping up. It is amazing when you think about some of the individuals that come to Tech Week and say, what is an app? Right? But that's, that's important. You want that. right? You want to be able to break that down and explain to someone and have that digestible piece. It's not just a bunch of acronyms. Because if that does become the case, it becomes an insular group that doesn't have an ability to trade that growth off to another category of people. That makes it really hard. So no acronyms, but take an opportunity to explain it. You know, get joy out of sitting down with your mom and saying, this is how you fix your computer or your printer. Right. Well, but Five years ago, I was at CBS Chicago, and we had a consultant come in to teach um, the whole reporting staff how to better use Twitter. And you can imagine with local news and how much is going on, how important being at the top of your Twitter game is for the growth of local news, which is seeing audiences diminish dramatically every year. And we had reporters who were as young as 25, and we had reporters that were in their... 70s okay and they were the the real stalwart journalists who you know could tell a story better than anyone but they raised their hand and asked what a retweet is okay so you can imagine that kind of span of information the 25 year olds were just taking off with as soon as there was breaking news the second they heard it someone dispatched from the scanner that they would be tweeting it so that would put us in an advantage and yet the person who could really get the story, who get the heart and the soul of it, had no idea how to use that tool. 
So I imagine in your world, you have something similar. Maybe not to, to, to that extreme. Well, not to diss the media a little bit on this, but I think my favorite example of how this comes to life with the media in particular is anytime we're going to a market, we do quite a bit of public relations. We're always trying to get on the TV. We're always trying to get onto radio shows. And a big driver of that is just getting people to show up, attendance. We want people to be there. We're looking for thousands of people. It means that you got to be on a road show constantly to say, like, attend, attend, attend. This is going to be awesome. And when you're pitching and going to the media, they always come back and they're like, you have content, but do you have any just like robots? That's that's way cool. And you're like, so you don't want to hear about the speakers, oh, they don't want to hear about visual. the companies, they want to you just want to hear about the robots and you want to see some giant display that just looks cool. And then you get there and you bring and lug all this stuff in there to these media spots and they're like, so is it is it going to do something or can it just stay there? And I'm like, I thought that was the point. It's like you wanted the robots to do something. Um, they don't want to hear anything about that because that's the easiest hook. It is, and it, it's you know in a world of a 24-hour news cycle, and it, it being television and wanting something visual, as crazy as that sounds, uh, it, it is part of the game just as it, it is. is when you're in Canada trying to. <laughs> Convince them. It is them indeed. That, you know, it is indeed. So that's okay. I have a bunch of robots. I always bring them. Bring, okay. Definitely bring something. <laughs> bring a cat that spin plates. That I brought plates. a hollow dog. That's been my recent one. I brought a hollow dog to the last segment. I was like, this is weird. There's always a way to outsmart them. I'll There's tell you always. That. Always. Um, so, you know, as you have risen through the ranks, taking over as CEO, you had to build out a great team. You now have 12 employees. When you hire, what are you looking for? What qualities are you looking for? And who do you want on your side? Yeah, that's actually um, personally been something that was the hardest to learn, frankly. So um, I'm actually, despite the fact that I haven't, in you know, absolute terms, been at Tech Week that long, I'm one of the most tenured employees there. We've had a complete change in the business that has resulted in just massive turnover. And finally, we're at the point where people are staying and sticking and are passionate. And a lot of that has to do with some of the history of the company, but a big part of that as well is making sure you have the right people. Um, and so some things that became very important to me was being willing to identify who those individuals are and then also candidly being able to be that manager. So I, until two months ago, was the youngest person at Tech Week. The average age at Tech Week for our employees is probably mid-30s. I have two employees with kids and I was terrified to originally hire them and manage them because I was like, they're not going to be able to look up to me. They're not going to want to listen to me. How in the world is that going to work? Um, and the bigger piece was creating an opportunity that they were excited about. And so when I think about the qualities, it's first and foremost somebody that's willing to get their hands dirty no matter how small the task is. Mm -hmm. My big rule of thumb is if I have someone on my team who's not willing to be a volunteer, why should anyone else volunteer? So if there's a badge that needs to be checked in or a pop-up banner that needs to go, then like do it. Just get it done Right. Um, first and foremost. And then second is being able to have some sort of expertise. I think that the hardest piece for a lot of startups is how do you find those really smart people? How do you be able to tap into that talent pool? And there's some quick hacks on being able to do it. Like heuristics for us is we used to hire back in, you know, before I was even at Tech Week, those individuals operating the events were coming straight out of college. They had never really seen an event before. They were just kind of doing everything and following instructions. And instead, when we hired our operations team, we went to the big agencies and found the really young people that were super good at their job, had risen up the ranks, and were fighting to take over large accounts. And so these were individuals that had managed large corporate activations for General Motors, 
they knew exactly what they were doing. And all of a sudden, running Tech Week was really easy for them. And I was like, this is great. Let's hire more people like them. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, so figuring out who's the best at it and then finding out who you can get from that organization and stealing them quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is there a specific, if you had to rank skills or one specific trait that you look for, what would you say it is? Um, openness to giving feedback. To so giving or taking? Giving. Giving. Giving is very important. Um, people tend to be, those that are willing to give feedback tend to be a little bit more thoughtful about taking it as well because they've thought through it very carefully on how they want to deliver it. A lot of people get feedback and they say they get it well, but then they kind of tune out and don't really listen to you again or don't do anything with it. Maybe it's on a notebook, but they didn't really do anything with it. Um, but if they're giving feedback, it means they've been observing you. They've been watching you and they've been listening to you and say like, hey, I really think that this could, this could be done better. X happened, here's what it caused, this is what I propose doing instead. That's thoughtful. That's being willing to hear and process and take it in better. Because especially for me as being a new, first time CEO who was very overwhelmed, I was very excited to hear from people, what can I do better? What can I improve on? And there would be no way for me to deliver a satisfactory work environment for them if I can't at least have that dialogue. Sure. So, you know, there has been a lot of talk about women in tech, specifically Silicon Valley, and, um, you know, today alone with um, the Uber CEO, the discussion is very much on trend and very on point about making the workplace more inclusive for women. Um, Give me just some thoughts now as a CEO, female CEO of Tech Week, um, about this discussion. What are, you know, there's so much to talk about, but when you think about it, what are, what are your thoughts and what are, what are you talking about with other women? Yeah, so the first piece is breaking down the layers that you have to really understand. So there's the high profile issues that you always start talking about where it's a funnel, you know, getting more women involved in tech, STEM education, how do you incentivize all those pieces. And there's another layer of how do we keep everyone feeling strong and feeling confident, retention, and it keeps building and building and building. But something else that has been really helpful to start seeing more dialogue around actually in the past year, which has been great, is um, microcuts is really what the theme has been. Moments where somebody's not intentionally doing it and they think it's not a big deal, but they are accidentally sexist or they're pointing something out. And there was a great video series that went through and said, name all the instances of the microcuts. So there was this one engineer who walks in, she's like, I was sitting in a conference room, Everybody else was guys. The client walks in. He's like, so what does everybody do? Everybody says, oh, we're all on the engineering team. And then he points to the girl and he says, no, wh what do you do? Mm. She's like, what? we're all on the engineering team. He's right. like, no, you, you're, you're, you're a female. It's like, no, no, we're all on the engineering team. Micro cuts, things that you're constantly dealing with that just are wearing you down. Where it's like, oh, okay, we're going to have to go through the song and dance again. Like, this is, this is frustrating. And so those are the small things that we're really starting to bring to life. And even being, um, you know, a female leader now, when we're raising capital, that's a huge piece of a lot of our discussions is the feedback we get from investors when we're raising. It's like, oh, she's, you know, confident, but not confident enough. She's not cocky. She's not willing to take the effort. And you're like, oh, I don't, there's mixed feedback. It's hard to implement. Um, but you know, good feedback is feedback is a gift. You can give it or return it. Um, and so that's one of those pieces of t 
talking about all those instances, which are super helpful because then you can turn around and actually tell your allies and your mentors because at the end of the day, this conversation about women in tech really needs to stop being just women in tech. It needs to be community in tech. Right. How do we actually help our colleagues and our male colleagues figure out how to do this? Because it's incredibly frustrating for them if they do something and they're like, why does this keep happening? Why does this get right, And they're unaware of what a micro-cut is because exactly. they're, they're not thinking in those terms. Yeah. So they are micro-cutting, but they don't know they're micro-cutting. Yeah. Um, I interviewed the CEO of TheMuse.com, which is an online website to find the perfect job. Uh, she, at the Catherine. time, she was Catherine Minshew. At the time, she was 29. I think she's 30, 31. And she talked about raising money and going to venture capitalists and how she would, you know, solid, passionate speech about how this is going to disrupt the monster dot coms of the world and and how she some of the stories she had about those conversations and how you know someone you know a male investor said you know I I really think that women on the coasts care about their careers, but not the whole middle of the country. So I'm not quite sure this is gonna work. And, you know, some of the, the, the conversations, it, it's very much an issue, very much a problem. Let me ask you, make it a little more personal for you as someone who's hiring. Um, you know, there's the idea that we, we, we tend to gravitate towards people, either consciously or subconsciously, are like us. So we don't mean to hire uh, you know, the, the woman who reminds us of ourselves. If we're a male, um, a white male, the, the guy who loved to play golf with, because it, it really reminds us of ourselves. How do you find yourself, as you're doing your hiring, um, how do you have to change your paradigm to think that beyond who you would love to grab a beer with, versus who is perfect for the job and what is conscious and what is subconscious. Because I think that that in and of itself is often the problem. Yeah, it's a, it's a really hard balance, especially when your team gets uh, at a point where it's big enough that not everybody's going to be engaged, but still small enough that when they do start talking, they quickly end up loafing around the same idea, and it's really hard to break down the consensus. Um, and so a lot of it comes with forcing yourself to be a bit more thoughtful during the hiring process, mm -hmm. engaging as many people as possible and forcing them to take notes on things that they maybe aren't paying attention to. So when they're making a case for a candidate on this is somebody we should hire or not, I'm very aggressive about like, you have to give me a very specific example of either how they achieve that with a metric, mm -hmm. so like what's the number, um, so that you're not talking about the person. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to do that. We're like, ah, oh, they just seem kind of quiet. And it's like, no. That is not the way we're talking about it. Don't anchor that because that is very much you transferring your own perception on somebody else. Because you seem quiet to me, you are therefore quiet. No, they may be, you might just be a very loud person. Right. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> so forcing yourself to stop talking about people as some sort of personality element where it's a high school. It's not about that piece. It's much more on you're trying to solve for a specific need. You need to be able to hire somebody that can do that. What are the specific skills? What are the specific stories? What are the reference checks saying in terms of the metric and the delivery they outputted? Now, I don't think we did a very good job at that at the very beginning of our hiring processes. And I found that very quickly when I had some of my members hiring, we ended up with like five dudes in a room who were going to be our candidates for sales. I was like, well, that didn't work. Right. Let's try again. Um, and immediately wiped the whole thing out and said, I know it's going to delay it, but let's start over because right. it's the same people. Right. And that change really helped for us. Well, but, and that is hard because if you are doing that and the, the you know, it, but you also want to be able to 
have an equal balance of women, of minorities, of a diverse workforce that we have a lot of different voices. Um, and that's just going to make any work environment better and excel, especially when you're in a sales environment and you're trying to sell. You have so many different people that you need to relate to. Sales is all about relationships when mm -hmm. you're dealing with a business-to-business -business environment, so you have to have that diverse team mm -hmm. to be able to make those connections. Mm -hmm. um, we can talk about this a little bit more in a second, but you know, just how do you support entrepreneurs um, beyond your business model of trying to curate the right audience? and look at what sponsors' needs are to get the right people in the room, what does Tech Week do specifically to help the entrepreneur who is in the process of learning more? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, to our earlier discussion on, you have products that solve specific needs for sponsors, which obviously have to generate money, but then the other side of how does it generate value for the community. Uh, we recently became, and the paperwork should be finalized by tomorrow, which is exciting, a public benefit corporation, which is a huge amount of work to shift our focus towards how do we measure what the impact is that we're having on a community? How do we really focus on that? And an example of how we bring together the people, and one of my favorite stories of success is we had an entrepreneur that came to our event, Tech Week LA. She pitched her company. She was in the room with one of our events that we had, which was supposed to be just learning and sharing, and um, a series of investors typically come and watch all these pitches, and at the end of the event, the investor came up and gave her a million dollars within two weeks, and that was something that happened while she was fundraising at Tech Week, and it was because we got the right investors in the room. Um, and so it's stories like that, and it's making sure you get the right people to solve. I need to raise money. I need people that are typically in this range of Series A, within this industry, within this focus of backing, and whether that's healthcare, and getting the right people in the room to actually have the right output. Well, and how do you get a story like you just told out to people who are in a similar boat who want, who would then want, I would think that would in turn increase your numbers at Tech Week if they know that that is a possibility. Yeah. I mean, how, I mean through, what, and through what means are you creating content yourself or how, through what means are you telling that story? Yeah, it's really hard. It's really, really hard because I wouldn't have known about that if it wasn't the fact that I knew her when I saw her pitch and went up to her afterwards. I said, I love your pitch, would love to keep in contact. And then immediately after, she had emailed me and let me know the good news. But I wouldn't have known. Mm. I wouldn't have necessarily known, which is really hard. Mm. Um, but then there's other opportunities that are a little bit more direct where we have the infrastructure to be able to tell. And that's actually one of my biggest hopes and dreams for being able to scale Tech Week is that we can use this model we tried out in Kansas City that I launched. And this was with partnership of the state of Missouri. So in Kansas City, which is a actually very large and burgeoning tech ecosystem, thanks to Google Fiber and Cisco Smart Cities, um, we are able to give out a half a million dollars in grants every year to a series of startups. Um, one of my favorite success stories from this is in 2015, when I first launched it with the state, we had a company move from Chile to Kansas City to start their company and started producing jobs. They are now hiring people. They wouldn't have been in Kansas City if it wasn't for that program. They came there because of that money, and the money's contingent on you staying there and launching an office in Kansas City. Wow, and That's what, kind of, what kind of business is it? Uh, that one in particular was agriculture. So they were using drones to be able to say whether or not the crops were doing well and trying to make a more efficient process. And did they move to Kansas City specifically because of the Tech Week money? They moved to Kansas City because of the Tech Week money. And That's it was incredible. the state is willing to give you that money as long as you stay and build your jobs here. Oh, that's great.
yeah, if more stories like that yeah. is probably what you want to focus on, but being able to tell them and you know, being able to get them out there is really key. Yeah, and now we've got a couple cohorts of classes that have gone through that program who have now raised $13 million in additional follow-on financing, have produced another incremental $9 million in revenue themselves. These are early-stage companies. That's a big number for them. And have produced more than 20 jobs in Kansas City between those two cohorts. That matters. That's important. That is why we became a public benefit corporation. Now, my biggest ask is that when we look to other cities, I want to be able to launch in every city with the state or the city stepping up and doing the exact same thing. That's what we need to see. Mm -hmm. When you talk about venture capitalists and, and going to venture capitalists and trying to raise money, um, you know, sales skills transfer to some degree, but being in that environment is a lot different than selling a booth. So what advice would you give to a small company, or a not so small company, that is approaching a venture capitalist hoping to secure funding? That's a hard one. That is definitely a hard one. I'd say um, the first piece is obviously know the ins and outs of your business and metrics and the numbers because that they care about. But I think a bigger piece that sometimes people get a little bit nervous about is they think, oh, there's all these fancy words that I'm supposed to know. Mm -hmm. And if you ask enough questions and ask somebody like, what does that acronym stand for? Why did you decide to do this type of financing? What was the actual trade-off? If X happened instead of Y, would it done? All of a sudden, people can't answer as many questions as you think they can, mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting insight and a very powerful one because it forces you to really understand everything enough that you now go into the play, into that pitch with a lot more confidence and ability to negotiate. At the end of the day, venture capitalists more often than not, unfortunately, aren't necessarily focused on getting the best out of the company. They're just looking at what those numbers are within their time frame to be able to return enough either to the LPs or the institutional side. It's a very uh, mixed incentive bag. And I know even myself, we are venture capital owned. I've raised a couple of rounds now. and. Even myself, I think if I would start another company, I probably would not look to bring on that much venture capital for the first few years. It is really hard, and it is a massive distraction. Um, and that is something that I think you're starting to hear a lot from entrepreneurs, which is great. Um, but find another way to raise the money? Find another way to raise the money. And if you want to go venture capital, that's great, but make sure that you feel confident enough and you're coming from a place of strength mm -hmm. to be able to fight for the company. It's your company. Fight for it. Let me ask you this, and this will be the final question, and then I'll open it up and, and would love to hear from you and hear what you'd like to ask Amanda. But, you know, as you think about, you, you started this by saying that when you left McKinsey, you thought about going into venture capital mm -hmm. and thought that that's the career path you wanted. And your career has been a, a, a journey that has taken you in a different direction. Now that you know what you know about this, would you now want to go into venture capital, or have you found that this has taken you in a different direction, you want to do something else? Once when you get a chance to operate something, I feel like you just can't go back. You really can't, because it's so empowering to know that you built it and you were a part of something that is not just measuring value or waiting to see what the numbers look like. You created it, you owned it. Every single part of it is there, and there's much more of a human piece where you turn around to your team and say, wow, we did it. You know, The biggest win for us, and what's interesting is that for our whole team and the way that we run as a company, the most exciting moment is not when Tech Week Chicago ends. It's actually when we get the data back from when everyone who attended says how the event was. It's our net promoter score. No one says anything until it comes back. It's actually very creepy. Like until Thursday of the following week, we're sitting there like, 
Is it a good score? Did people like it? Maybe not. Like that's when you feel good about what you did is when you know you were able to deliver for everyone. It's not about just making it look cool. And so when you have that level of satisfaction and connectivity as a team to create something, I can't see why you would just want to measure and wait for value. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.